Hi, this is Serena Sun, founder and director of Breaking Taboo. Welcome to our audio video podcast. I'm excited to announce that today I am sitting here with Dr. Sam, also known as Dr. O'Bannon. And Dr. Sam is a doctor in clinical psychology as well as a neuropsychology fellow. So Dr. Sam, first of all, what does the word fellow mean in neuropsychology? Why is it not just neuropsychology or neurology for all of those out there who might not know? Mm -hmm. So great question. First and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure to be on here. Great to have um, you. Thank you. So diving right into it, I guess. Um, Fellow within the context of the field just represents additional training that's being met. Um, so as you've already mentioned, I do hold my doctorate in psychology, um, but how psychology works is depending on the state, there are certain requirements that either allow you, like permit you to refer to yourself as a psychologist, or they don't. So California, which is where I'm located, is one of those states which specifies that until you are licensed, you cannot legally call yourself a psychologist. Um, so I am eligible for licensure. It's just all things COVID hasn't happened yet. Um, and then in terms of the fellow, as it pertains to neuropsychology, um, in the field of neuropsychology, it's a specialization. It's a very specialized area of clinical psychology where we deal primarily with brain and behavior relationships. It's actually, I affectionately refer to it as the love child of psychology and neurology. It's like if the two of them were to come together and have a beautiful little baby, <laughs> that is neuropsychology. Um, so the, the term fellow attached to that just lets us know that we're still in that fellowship period. There's a two-year requirement um, to be working underneath a neuropsychologist or a neurologist directly um, underneath their licensure to be able to make sure that you've had enough exposure and enough experience to then specialize at that level. And then once you're licensed, of course, you can then refer to yourself as a clinical neuropsychologist. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. And I'm curious in within the uh, neuropsychology fellow, what are some of the tasks uh, you uh, learn and, and practice with? Yeah, so neuropsychology is a really fascinating field and it involves so many different things. It really just depends on the setting that you're working in. Um, so I've, I've had the wonderful opportunity to have worked in many different settings, um, but your description or what you're doing kind of looks differently depending, it looks different depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. um, for example, overall neuropsychology, we do testing. Um, a lot of like paper and pen tests, or we'll do different activities or like puzzles or playing with blocks or whatever the case is, just so that we can um, get a great measure of the function of certain parts of the brain and how they're working. Um, because we also have to have specialized training and education in neurology and how like certain areas of the brain are going to manifest in your behavior and, and what certain parts um, are attached to the things that we do or our different functions. Um, so across the board, neuropsychology is mainly testing, right? And report writing and everything else. Um, but then depending on the setting, it kind of looks different. So in like a medical setting, neurologists and neuropsychologists and psychologists, like they work very closely together, um, helping to, for example, like localize a lesion in the brain, or if there's a lot of seizure activity, 
um, our testing combined with some of the imaging that our neurologists or a neuroradiologist might do can help to really focus down and narrow down like where is this point of activity occurring? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we target it? And then if we remove certain parts of the brain or if we have to do um, certain procedures, how will that then impact the patient? Um, so there's a lot of medical referrals that come through um, different referrals, like with cancers, et cetera. We know that chemo has an impact on our processing speed. So um, there's lots of different cool things that have to do with the medical setting. Um, right now I'm working in a private practice and we deal primarily with like educational referrals and mm-hmm. academic referrals. Um, so we do a lot of testing with um, all ages really um, who are in school or perhaps are having difficulties, maybe like I've had some cases recently where there's like adult ADHD and they're trying to figure out like, how do I manage this in my life? And how can I um, put certain, you know, strategies into my daily work life? That's going to make me more productive. Right. Um, So there's like a lot of different things that we sort of have the ability to provide answers for um, and to sort of help to mediate around those. So all by all just by studying the brain and its effects on behavior, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, you touched upon ADHD in adults. I'm actually quite curious. What are some of the skills (laughs) perhaps (laughs) that, that an adult could practice um, if they have ADHD? Because it's a very common uh, phenomenon. You know, a lot of people have it. A lot of adults have it and it's getting diagnosed um, more and more so every year. So yeah. What are some of the coping mechanisms for that? Yeah. Um, it really just depends on the person, but I guess some overall recommendations or accommodations is structure, structure, and structure. You want to make sure that you have a schedule in place, um, that you are doing things at certain times, just to make sure that um, basically you're keeping things consistent and you're keeping things moving, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times what adults with ADHD in particular are struggling with are more executive functioning tasks, like their ability to organize and plan their day or information or to figure out how to quickly switch from one task to the next. Um, Some of them really struggle with like cognitive inefficiency, which is looking at like how, whether you can do a task both quickly and accurately. Um, And so there's lots of different things that can cause some disruption in a work life or everyday life, even family life, Um, you know, like going to the grocery store and not being able to focus on what you went there for. You don't even remember to like look on your list or you're all over the place, you know? So um, we recommend a lot of different like um, strategies like that to where you're using like calendars or you're using a schedule, you're writing things down, you're doing things during a consistent time during the day in a work setting, um, being able to organize your day. So -hmm. between these hours, I'm gonna take work calls. Between these hours, I'm gonna take work or I'm gonna address work emails. Um, These are designated for specific meeting times or whatever the case is, but just being able to like navigate your life, we just wanna make it a little easier um, for people to sort of get through. And that's because uh, people with ADHD are easily distracted from one task to, to the other and also a part of the uh, having difficulty with focus, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot more involved in that, but absolutely. Basically, our, our frontal lobes are a little, just a little behind. 
We'll put a it that behind. way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. A little behind. Um, because, and I'm asking because, you know, I personally have uh, met quite a few people or I have friends, um, uh, even family members with ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm just curious if, if a lot of times what I hear is just uh, the inability to focus or study yeah. or, you know, do a task for a long period without, of you know, time. totally getting into CBT or, you know, but just off the bat, um, you know, do you know of any common coping mechanisms? I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, I mean, off the bat, we do know based on the research that the most effective treatment for ADHD is a combination between medication and therapy. Um, or and some sort of resource or executive functioning coach or someone who can sort of manage their lives, right? Because again, th- there's a lot of difficulties um, with like organization and planning in your daily life and, and in the things that you are doing. So um, there are things that can be done. Um, and at the same time, like medication can be very helpful. I know a lot of people are pretty hesitant about medication these days understandably so. Um, but there's lots of research that shows that the medication is actually very effective. Um, and it all has to do, I don't want to go like too nerdy and too brainy. Um, but basically we see that, um, in an ADHD brain, um, how do I say, okay, I'm going to put this in a different way, in a different context. Basically in our brains, we have, um, certain vacuums, we'll call them vacuums, right? They're like enzymes that when like dopamine or something is released, it comes through and it like slowly like vacuums up the extra dopamine that we're not using, right? Mm -hmm. In an ADHD brain, that vacuum is working so efficiently, it like sucks up everything like too fast, Mm -hmm. right? So they, they really, a lot of times they struggle, especially our kids, they struggle with being able to do things that are non-preferred, like I mean, let's be honest, like how many of us really like want to do work, you know, Right. or want to pay attention to the news or like want to focus on a certain task that may not be preferred at that time. So Mm -hmm. much easier to do something that we enjoy. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's partially because we get that dopamine from it, you know, that fill, that pleasure principle or that reward chemical in our brain Um, with an ADHD brain that that dopamine is getting sucked up so quickly that there's no positive feeling behind it. It makes it more difficult to actually do what they're supposed to do. Mm, fascinating. So um, basically like there's, there's ways around that. I mean, you can set up like reward principles for yourself. It takes it back to somewhat like elementary concepts, but um, even for myself and I do not struggle with ADHD, but I do struggle with COVID <laughs> Not that I have COVID, meaning like COVID 2020. <laughs> We're all struggling with 2020, right? Right. Meaning it's exceptionally hard to get things done, to be productive during this time. Everyone is going through like a little lull, trying to like navigate our, our daily lives since our routines have been massively disrupted. Sorry. Um, so with that, you know, you can you can easily put together like a reward system for yourself. You know, like if I can get through this task today, or if I can get through this task within the next hour, then I'm going to allow myself to watch an episode of this TV show that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Something like that, just so that you're like making, you're balancing, but you're still being productive. Sometimes, I mean, I feel like everyone struggles with that. Seems Sometimes I even struggle with that. But then yeah. again, I tend to work 
I, I have what I think is almost like a career ADHD, as in I have so many different things <laughs> that I work on. However, I'm yes. extremely good at time management. And the one thing that helps me is my calendar. Yes. I basically live yes. by my calendar uh, because there's just so many things I have to think of. Even as, a, of course, the yeah. founder and director of a nonprofit, there's like 50 billion things, you know, to, to think about at any given time, there's no way, no way I'd be able to do it without writing them all down on right. my calendar, you know? Uh, but what I do struggle with is say I do give myself that reward um, with watching a TV show or something. And you and can't then get just, off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, wow, this, this is a good show. This is how I know it's a really good show and they're doing their jobs. Right. Because yeah, I just, I need to binge it. So that's like, sometimes I'm like, like, and then the next day I have to play catch up because I'm like, yep. it doesn't happen that rarely because I don't give myself that much of a luxury, but some, you know, it, it could also be because my brain is so overworked, you know, that it's literally craving, yes. like, you know, a longer period of time. So I do understand I need to give myself more self-care. <laughs> I, I, <preach> yes. <laughs> I preach it, but I myself don't even have the time to do it, you know, but we all do. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, you know, that's that's just. <laughs> I feel like we could all relate in 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 certain ways, of course, to uh, what you just spoke about. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, thank you so much for answering some of my basic questions uh, on ADHD that I feel like a lot of people probably wonder about, since, like I said, it mm -hmm. is a very common phenomenon. And um, I also wanted to chat with you uh, about during our phone call earlier, our preliminary phone call. You mentioned. Mm -hmm that you're fascinated by trauma. So when I ask you, what are some of your favorite parts of uh, of uh, neurology, right? Neuropsychology, I know it's yes. a very difficult question and you had a difficult time answering it because there's so many fascinating aspects about it, but you specifically yes. mentioned trauma. So tell me a little bit about trauma. And uh, what I found fascinating with what you said was trauma really affects or can affect IQ right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about that and what the latest research is on trauma and the brain. Yeah. So hopefully I can, I can narrow this down because there's so <laughs> much research. There's so much information. Um, but yeah, so while in school, like part of my dissertation was on trauma, specifically non-accidental trauma or child abuse in children. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so there's a wealth and there's a wealth of knowledge really about trauma and how it specifically affects the brain. Um, and it's always been something that I've been interested in. There is an amazing book. Um, I actually have it in here. It's called How Children Learn or How Children Succeed. Hold on. It's over here somewhere. I don't know. The author, I can literally see it. Mm -hmm. How Children Succeed is the name of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I read that a while ago. Um, and it just really, really just opened my eyes into a lot of things that I don't think a lot of people realize. This particular book goes into a lot of um, disparities in different socioeconomic statuses or different communities and how um, ACEs or adverse childhood experiences have been shown in the literature to actually impact many different aspects of our human lives or our learning to where it can impact um, like education and everything mm -hmm. else. And so just to give you a little bit of, a little bit of the research, um, we know that, for example, I'm going to make it a little more broad because it can also apply to like 
all things 2020, right? <laughs> There's a lot going on during this year. Um, we know research has shown that um, chronic stress or prolonged stress can actually lead to like substantial impairments in brain development. Um, it can actually literally change some of the structures. Mm -hmm. it, can, it can lead to a compromised immune system, um, higher rates of mortality. Um, throughout the lifespan, it can lead to behavioral problems and like a whole myriad of different issues and concerns. Um, has this been when studied? I was, sorry, don't mean mm -hmm. to cut you off, but no, has no, this, just curious, has this been studied cross cultures? Because I feel like there culturally yes. there are, and country wise, there are more cultures that are in more chronic stress and pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's literally a part of the culture, for example, certain Asian cultures, um, or I think I was just reading this article about, you know, that the amount of time that people in Japan work and mm -hmm. how stressful their lifestyle is. So, yeah. Has this been studied across cultures? Does it have the same impact? Yes. Hmm. Yes. From the research that I've seen, it definitely has the impact on humans in general, um, regardless of the culture. But yes, you're absolutely correct that there are certain cultures and certain environments that are exposed to a little more stress, perhaps, or they just don't have the same coping tools and resources that have been passed down um, or it's not generations, even, or maybe it's not accessible. It's, right? Well, I, I would say uh, it's not as accepted, you know, because different yes. cultures value different things. And if it's in the yes. value of a culture, if work is in the value of culture, and this can go for yes. America too, even just different places, mm -hmm. for example, big cities uh, or mm -hmm. New York, which is known to, you know, the city that never sleeps, <laughs> people are working yes. all the time versus say, I don't know, um, places that are um, more rural, right? Where, you know, it's all about living, taking it easy, living easy. We can even make it like East Coast versus West Coast, of which I often yeah. talk about the difference. <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite curious on that. It's, yeah. Yeah, there, there's so much literature. It, you can definitely like find yourself going down a rabbit hole um, because it, it crosses cultural barriers. It crosses geographical um locations stress. and, and everything, just stress in general. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the other things is that, so cortisol, which is our primary stress hormone, mm -hmm. right. And everybody's makes, familiar makes with cortisol. Fat. Yeah. <laughs> it makes, right. Everybody's familiar because we're like, okay, now we're getting weight. It must be the cortisol. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it also leads to cell death in key brain structures. So mm -hmm. like it can literally kill parts of your brain if there's prolonged stress. Um, and what we were talking about specifically during our pre-call in terms of like IQ, um, a lot of times that we see that because, because these effects of, of stress or trauma or whatever it is that we decide to talk about are having such a critical impact on our brains, we've seen in the literature that it can have an impact on our IQ um, and, and lower or decrease our IQ by as much as 30 points. Now, That's 30 points- just so that everybody knows that is significant. That is huge. Um, especially when we're dealing with the constructs of intelligence, we like looking at things in terms of standard deviations in order to determine whether or not there's been a major difference. A standard deviation is considered 15 points in the context of an IQ. So if you're talking about it can decrease or have an effect on the IQ by 30 points, that is two standard deviations. That could be the difference between someone that would be performing at like a high average range. And then they're actually displaying or demonstrating low average scores. Mm -hmm. So they can go from being above grade level 
to perhaps at the bottom of their grade level or even below just Mm -hmm. from stress. Now, does that mean that they don't have the intellect? Absolutely not. Does that mean that they're not smart? No, it doesn't. Um, That just lets us, it just gives us some insight um, as to how sensitive a lot of these brain structures can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And while they can be sensitive, we also know that the the brain is pretty like plastic, right? Or like Mm -hmm. flexible. It can recover from things. It's very adaptable. Um, And it's also very important to know that and to hear that. Um, And I think for a lot of people, that's been like mind blowing to be like, Mm -hmm. what? So Mm -hmm. like stress and trauma could have an impact on how, how I'm performing in school. Absolutely. Has this been, uh, I mean, what, what is the research on actual looking at the brain say about this? I mean, is this, do you think it's because the brain is literally shutting down? Are there like not, you know, are this, uh, synapses just not, you know, fully being created as much? Like what is going on in the actual brain? Is it like slowing down its process or is this something else that's more behavioral? And I'm asking because I've had a similar Mm. experience in high school. So, well, first of all, let me backtrack. Uh, What I was thinking about when you were talking about this is um, in the, uh, in, in certain cultures, uh, for example, the Asian culture, actually, you know what, I'm sorry. The Asian culture and, you know, um, certain cultures that do emphasize more work or, you know, stress is not even a thing. There's like a lot of pressure and that's just how, that's just what's valued in the culture for better or worse. Um, You're talking about abuse. And I think what's interesting is recently I've been finding out that at least according to the American culture, a lot of the parenting styles of uh, Asian families are actually quite abusive. Um, um, according to what uh, um, Americans, at least, are are used to. Now, when taking that in the construct of what's accepted in a culture, you know, it's uh, might not be seen as abusive in in Asia. But let's, you know, but certain certain things, I, I guess, that like you know, are accepted in the culture. If an American family were to say that to their child, <laughs> you know, they they'd be like, "Wow, what is like this is a really bad parents or something, right?" Um, so it's been interesting because I myself. Um, have and am still going through therapy to try to process some of these things that really, and they were traumatic to me as well, you know, so um, there is a good chance that it really was abuse. And, you know, basically, right now, what what I'm going through is is, um, realizing that, you know, just because something is normal does not make it okay. So just because something is normal in my society, or whatever I grew up with does not necessarily make it okay, right. So it's been interesting, I'm still processing it, I'm still trying to figure it out. But that's been my own journey. And I think a lot of um, children, first generation children can uh, you know, um, immigrant kids can actually relate to this, especially ones of more strict cultures, such as, you know, Asian ones. Um, but the other thing that I want to say with that mm-hmm. is I've always been very quote unquote smart growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. I've always been the top of my grade, like the trauma that I experienced when I was younger, I guess, obviously did not affect me. Um, in my studies, because all that came very easily to me. But also, again, it's a cultural thing, too, because it's valued so much in in my culture, you have to get straight A's, you have to do well in school, you have to study, right. And then later on in high school, when I actually started getting uh, panic attacks, and things got a bit more stressful, and, and, you know, uh, the environment in my family was just with my parents was, 
pretty traumatic. Um, and uh, there was a lot of neglect basically going on. Um, I went through my own portion of, of depression when I was in high school and I had no guidance and no mentorship. And then I basically in my mind decided I don't want to study. You know, I decided behaviorally, I just stopped doing it because I was craving other things. You know, I was, I was like, you know what, no matter how much I study, no matter how well I do, it doesn't seem to make a difference. You know, it's just, so that was like my own thing, but more like behavioral wise or the personality that I had developed in high school. Um, granted when I got into college a little bit later on, I was like super into, I took like 10 courses a semester, you know, I took things just for fun and, you know, um, I love learning to this day, but there was that period where things were extremely stressful. I was going through panic attacks and I wasn't doing well in school, of course, you know, much to my parents' dismay, <laughs> but yeah. so I'm curious. That's why I'm asking how, how much of that yeah. is like, you know, did my brain shut off or is it like, I know that consciously for me, I'm made that conscious choice. I don't want to do yeah. this, you know? Yeah. You know, I think you're bringing up an excellent point. This is, this is a lot and it's heavy. Um, but first of all, I commend you for going through that process, right? Because I think that that makes a significant difference. Um, I what wanted process? to touch on a exactly. couple of things. What the process of actually like going through therapy and oh, trying yeah. to figure it out and spending time just like trying to connect, right? And really trying to understand what those feelings were for you. Got to walk the um, walk, you know? Think, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's so important. And I think, I think it brings up a couple of things in particular. Number one, you're absolutely right. Um, cultural expectations or cultural norms are a significant component of of any of these things, any type of diagnosis. I mean, in psychology, we take into consideration cultural norms and everything because you're, you're right. There are certain, there are certain practices and certain expectations that are normal or that are appropriate in one culture that would not be appropriate in another. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a negative thing. I think it's easy for people to ascribe negative values to things that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also important for each individual to take the time to determine whether or not they were affected by that. So by you now being able to be like, you know what, now that I look back on it, I'm now really, I'm now realizing that based on how I responded in certain timeframes, like maybe it was abusive for me. It was traumatic for me, mm. which is totally fine. And I mm -hmm. think that's a great place to come to, mm -hmm. um, in regards to the question, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, to be honest, I'm not completely sure how the mechanisms are working. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of research that's sought to determine that. Um, but I would, I would almost challenge a little of what you said, that yes, you may have been cognizant of it, and it may have been a deliberate choice, but there was an aspect of difficulty that probably started occurring in your brain that made it harder to want to try. Oh, yeah. No, I did right? not want to try. That's for sure. <laughs> However, yeah. again, how much yes. of that was the brain and how much of that was, you know, my, my behavior, I mean, probably both, but well, I'm just very curious about, yeah, yes. the, the research on, on the actual, like what's happening in the brain. Cause you know, we have so many brain scans. We have so many different ways of brain imagery yeah. nowadays. I'm curious if there's been any research done, like when, like with the trauma and the brain and what we actually see happening to the brain, I guess would be mm -hmm. the point of the question. Yeah. Um, yes, there has been. What it is in particular, 
off the top of my head, I can't think about the exact mechanism, but I do know that there are certain structures that are impacted. Structures such as like the amygdala, which deals a lot with like our emotions. Um, the hippocampus, which deals a lot with memory. Um, even our prefrontal cortex, which is our frontal lobes, which deals a lot with our ability to focus or pay attention. Um, and so all of these things together, we are seeing that these key structures are being impacted, which is going to in turn have an impact on your behavior. I, I challenge the notion that anything is, is only behavioral, right? Because our brains function through this cycle of emotions impacting behaviors and vice versa. Right. Um, and there is that neurobiology as well. Right. That's so, true. yeah, every behavior is like come, comes from the brain. Every single thing comes yes. from the brain. Our brain has to yes. give the command in order for the behavior to happen. Yes. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's all interconnected would be, would be my response. Yes. While there are elements that are more behavioral because you're like, okay, well now I'm going to do this because this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. And because this is how I feel now I'm going to not do, or I'm going to choose to do whatever this is. And at the same time, like there is a neurological component to that. Same with the example that you gave about depression, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're, if you're, we see a lot that with depression, with sadness, with stress, with trauma, um, and to be specific, a lot of the research that I looked at was with intentional, like non-accidental, that was like actual child abuse where these kids were having like cracked ribs and skull fractures, very, very traumatic things. And what about, very upsetting. what about, um, um, parents whipping their kids with a belt? <laughs> so I mean, I, I <laughs> to bring so up the controversy, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's just, yeah. Cause I was thinking about what you said, you know, things are cultural norms and whatnot. Right. Yes, but then, yes. but then there are things that are like, what is okay and what is not okay. That's kind of like where I'm at right now, even in my own personal journey is like the rhetorical question. Um, yes but 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 really though these like, are there such are good some questions things, yeah there are some things in this world where like most people would just be like no that's not okay it's not okay to kill people without reason but yeah, uh, yeah they're all rhetorical because then you talk to you talk to people in the criminal <laughs> system who believe in the death sentence and you know it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> but these are such good questions they really are but to a certain extent you're right they are rhetorical because it's like some everybody's gonna have like their own responses right like it's something that you kind of want to know but there probably isn't a concrete response to in the context of like beating your kids or whipping your kids like I'm very very hesitant I will say from my psychology lens if I put on my my hat in psychology Child abuse is usually defined as anything other than an open palm that leaves bruises or marks, right? There has to be like evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also from a cultural background where that's common. Mm -hmm. And what, what we come from the notion of like, well, so I am a woman of color, but I'm actually from Bermuda, right? Okay. And so mm -hmm. I'm from an island background, you know, my mom is her family and her origins are from Trinidad and Tobago. So like super West Indian. Um, okay. My dad is completely mixed in terms of like ethnic diversity and everything. You know, he, his, his biological parents on his mom's side were Caucasian from like Kansas, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> and then his biological father's side was an African-American man. So it's like, I have so much of everything in my family. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I mean, at the end of the day, like I'm a woman of color, right? And in our cultures, mm -hmm. it's common to to beat your kids. <laughs> so I'm so cautious when it comes to that it conversation is, because I'm like- 
Yeah, but isn't it just so interesting? I'm a mandated reporter. (laughs) Right. That's what I was going to say. I was just going to say like, yeah, being in America, if anyone came to you saying, hey, my parents are doing this, you would have to report it. You know, yes. it's just like it's not accepted here in America. Yes. But what's and what's it's a conversation that yeah. I have with parents. And we're so and, and America is made up of immigrants. You know, so it's so interesting. So many people Strange, probably right? struggle with this. Yeah. And speaking Strange. of <laughs> speaking of the whole multicultural aspects, right? I definitely yes. want to chat about. Um, so Dr. Sam here wrote a book for children on uh, yes. what is the book called? Essentially me. I actually have it. I can grab it. Uh It's an essentially me. It's a coloring book slash activity book. So it goes through, it's dedicated to children of color Uh um, really because, and it says it all on the back, but my goal during this time, I think in light of everything that's going on in the world, it's really, really important for all children to know that they matter. Right. But especially children of color right now, where the messages coming through the media is that their lives don't matter. Mm -hmm. Their lives are not equal to Mm -hmm. other lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so it does feature like so children of color in different professions. And it has a wonderful coping activity on the back that families can do just as stress management. Right, right. And speaking of neurology, the brains of children are so malleable. They're just, you know, like sponges that soak up everything. And so exactly like we said before, so much of what we become later on in adults is, is, um, uh, starts from childhood, you know, starts from childhood yes. development, childhood brain development. So the messages yeah. that we receive as kids affect us for the rest of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not a matter of being, you know, even weak or strong or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that's just how our brains work. And of course there yeah. are ways to change it, but it takes effort. It just takes yes. more effort later on in life. Uh, but with that said, um, I wanted to chat with you about one of the most famous researches done to children right um about multicultural and uh you know the different colors of the skin and how that mm-hmm. affects children and the way that they comprehend the world the bobo doll studies right yeah. that we mentioned uh, during the phone call which i thought you know a lot of people know of this uh experiment however um most people still don't so yeah let's let's educate our audience what are the bobo yes. doll studies and what happened so, okay, Reader's Digest version, Samantha, <laughs> I will talk a lot and I will make this so long. So basically the Bobo doll experiment came out of the research of Albert Bendora, right? He's a, a forerunner in psychology. He was major um, and it was actually groundbreaking, but it was actually designed around aggression, mm. right? Um, the original context of the study was basically um, where like Children were given different dolls. They were seeing things. They were observing different behavior that they saw from adults. And it was like, are they going to repeat this behavior, right? Usually you see children, they go and they're like loving on the doll and oh, like, oh, it's a doll. It's cute. But then people came in and they started being aggressive with this doll. And they were like, what is this child going to do? And the study actually demonstrated that children are able to learn through the observations of adults in their lives. which has so many implications. Like we can stay on this topic for like weeks alone. Like Mm -hmm. this can just expand and expand and expand. Like it has so many implications, right? Um, But as these studies started to expand and they realized like, okay, this child just watched me. They were previously gentle. And now all of a sudden they're aggressive and they're rough with the doll and they're learning from us. They're it's modeled, right? It's modeled. Um, 
these studies started expanding. Um, and then with the expansion of these studies, there were actually studies that came out with dolls where it showed that children of color actually found a preference to the, the white dolls mm -hmm. because they felt like the, the colored dolls were not beautiful or they weren't as valued. Um, and it was, it, it just, it grew into this huge body of literature that really just looked at not only social modeling and learning, um, mm -hmm. but perception. Yeah. I think, and, um, for, for those of you out there who uh, are not familiar with this or even are a little bit familiar and want to learn a bit more, I, th there, I think mm -hmm. there are still uh, videos that you can watch even on YouTube yes. or if you just do a yes. little bit of research, you can see this, these experiments actually taking place um, and being recorded, you know, the actual recorded version of it. And I mm -hmm. remember seeing videos on, uh, yeah, exactly that asking uh, a child of color, you know, to pick between different colored dolls. And usually they would pick the white doll. And then when the uh, researcher asked why they would say because the white doll is prettier or it's better yeah. or they just had all of these mm -hmm. intrinsic messages that they already thought yes. so therefore they would pick the white doll first yes. um they they would prefer that and then i i believe i don't know if this was the same study or or a different one but speaking of the aggression part um i think there was a study it could have been this one of the, the bubble doll studies as well but where they asked them to um treat the dolls like to give them a punishment or give them the um uh, uh, uh basically um a consequence for a mm -hmm. crime and dolls that were colored would get a more severe consequence um, than ones that are white. Right. And yes. I think the similar study has been repeated throughout yes. history with various the children and adults. Yes. Children and adults. Yeah. Various different experiments, but typically one of the major ones to, was the yeah. Stanford experiments. If you want to look that up, the Stanford study and Stanford experiment. <laughs> so this is like, take me way back, like pre, like very beginning of grad school. But the, the general notion of this study was exactly what you've outlined, right? Where they actually had adults, they came into the room, it was like prison experiments, and they realized there were several things. Um, one, there were studies that were set up to where I think it was actually like members of the, de of the department, like the psychology department, mm -hmm. um, or, or people were brought in. Um, and they created like this prison environment, right? Mm -hmm. Just to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, they realized that these people who were put in positions of authority or who were supposed to be acting as the prison guards became very aggressive and very demeaning. And were at the point of like administering harm and shock and just doing horrendous things mm -hmm. to these individuals. And they Afterwards, they had to debrief everybody. Of course, everybody had to go through like extensive counseling, <laughs> um, but it just got bad. It, it was almost like Lord of the Flies, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. book Lord I of the Flies where like, mm -hmm. it starts off as like really innocent. And then all of a sudden it turns into this massive, like, yeah, like really animalistic, terrible approach where like everybody's just willing to like, they build off of the aggression of others mm -hmm. and they're basically ready to like kill people. Just because they're in that environment. Yeah, um, it's a group and, mentality. It's the group mindset. Yes, and, and you know, thing. there's even been, there's been so many studies done about uh, Hitler and Nazis and how was mm -hmm. he able to get, you know, an entire country yep. to kill, you know, an entire race. Yep. It's like, so it, it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, I just saw something. I mean, Facebook is definitely not research, but <laughs> I just saw something on Facebook this morning that like 
really, really stuck with me and it really moved me. It's probably going around. Everybody at some point is probably going to see it, but it was essentially this very brief story of how a teacher performed an experiment in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really blew my mind. And it talks about this exact principle because it is replicated through history, through every experiment that's been done, that this group think mentality um, really does not serve us as a people. And so it doesn't did, help us to be more humane. What, what happened, happened was <laughs> the teacher basically was in the classroom and um, they were supposed to be watching a video or like a movie or like listening and taking notes on it, right? She picked on one kid in the class who everyone knew was paying attention and everyone knew was taking notes. Everybody liked this kid, one of the popular kids in the class. Picked on the kid in the class, like slammed down everything, started yelling at this child to be like, you're not doing what you're being asked to do. Why not? Got sent to the principal's office. But before she gave everyone an opportunity to to defend him, Mm -hmm. not one person spoke up even though everyone knew that she was wrong and everyone saw that this kid was paying attention and that they had the notes to prove it. Not one person spoke up. Kid went to the principal's office, of course gets in trouble, but it turned out afterwards that she used it as a lesson for her, her classroom. And this was actually written from the perspective of one of the students who was in that classroom. And he was like, I'll never forget because she came back and was like, why didn't any of you speak up? Why didn't any of you say something when you knew that this was wrong? Mm -hmm. And the general consensus was like, well, we were just so shocked because you've never acted like this before. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know that we could. And it was just this huge lesson on like, even, even when we know something is wrong, Mm -hmm. most people are not going to stand up and say anything. You know, that's one of the major things that bothers me actually. And one of the major things that I look for in friendship and in people that I keep close to me, actually friendship lovers, whatever I've, I've gotten in discussions or, um, uh, you know, conflicts about this before, even, even in relationships where, you know, it's like, why does the other person not stand up for me? Because I would do it in a heartbeat. Then again, I know that I'm a little different in this aspect. It's definitely gotten me in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I always stand up for people. It's one of my values, but sometimes I also think it's an people again with the East coast, West coast thing, right? Like a part of it. I don't know. Is it, I don't know if it's loyalty or what, or just, I don't, but there's just something in me where if I see someone, it's probably also my own experiences with getting Mm -hmm. bullied as a younger, but if I see Mm -hmm. someone else getting bullied, I cannot stand for it. I simply cannot tolerate it, period. It's just like goes against all of my values and all every, my character, my identity, you know? So I think that's a major reason why, but uh, I'm curious, this this kid that was yelled at, did he know? Cause I'm thinking like poor kid. No. I wonder if that's traumatizing for him. <laughs> he like- didn't know. And in fact, I think towards the bottom, cause again, it was a very brief story, but towards the bottom, it was like the kid came back and asked his friends and asked the classroom, like, how come nobody stood up for me? Oh wow! And they were just like, sorry. Like some didn't want to get in trouble. Some just didn't want to be the next person. Like they all just felt like, Oh shoot. But I'm, I am right there with you. I'm literally the same person. I, I, I don't know if it's loyalty or something else. I do think it's a bit bigger than loyalty, but for me, that's how I perceive it, right? Mm -hmm. My dad used to always say something when I was younger, it used to get on my nerves. But as I got older, I started realizing how valuable this phrase was, but he used to always tell me perception is nine tenths of the law, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of what your intention was, how it was perceived is what's going to be fact for that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think that 
for me, I definitely see that it is a loyalty thing. And unfortunately, I don't think that people have that internal value enough so to really stand up, whatever that looks like. I think standing up for something or standing up against something that's wrong looks differently for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should be kind to ourselves and give ourselves grace to be able to figure out what that means for us. But to sit back and not do anything, knowing that something is wrong, especially at the deficit of somebody else, like I can't, it, my mm-hmm. flesh starts crawling. It makes me angry. It makes me yeah. sad. I think, I think, horrible. A, yeah, a part of it, I, I believe is also people are so driven by fear. So these kids obviously yes. were scared of authority. Um, and then when it happens, even to adults, like they are driven by fear. They don't just like they said, they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. They're protecting themselves. Right. So it's a human it's instinct. None of my business. Yeah. It's a human instinct to protect themselves over someone else. And it's, it's a fear driven mindset, but yeah. unfortunately I think many people out there, if not most people are driven by fear. And that's, that's part of the reason why I love life coaching, for example, is like, Mm -hmm. it kind of like just goes straight like to, to that type of mindset and like gets past like those type of belief systems. But psychologically speaking, even neurology, fear has such a big impact on our brains, right? That we're just designed as human beings to um, notice that first to like, yeah, it's, yes. we have to literally get over that, get over or yes. else our entire lives. I, I've met people where their entire lives are led by fear. Yeah. It's literally like all their decisions are led by fear. And that's, yes. a, I, that's such an it's a horrible place to, to be in. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's almost like being in a prison because there are things that you know that you want to do there. Are, you can look at your behaviors or look at the decisions and know like, this isn't what I want. You know, like I want to do differently. I want to do this. I want to be this person. But if you continue to focus on the fear and you don't push past it, you're not willing to um, rub shoulders with the discomfort enough. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. then you're not going to get over it. I mean, research in psychology even shows that's how we deal with phobias and stuff too, right? If you have something that you're truly, truly afraid of, you have to be exposed to it. Right. Because you have to desensitize yourself to it. Right. And until you're willing to be uncomfortable, then you're not going to grow beyond it. Um, and I do think it's very unfortunate. Um, and in light of everything that's going on, we're seeing that in such major por- like proportions right now, that I think most of us are sitting back looking and we're like, what level of Jumanji are we in, in this world right now? Like, where are we and what's happening? Because this is insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you are absolutely correct. Yeah. And another thing about, you know, just being led by fear, it's just, it's uh, not only is it unfulfilling, but it damages your self-esteem. I, I can't yes. imagine. It damages a person's self-esteem. It's like, because the person you want to be is not that like versus the fears. Yeah. It's not, there's such a discongruence, you know, there's just yeah. such a disconnect. And if you don't get over that hump, how are you ever going to be the person that you actually want to be the person that you right. can, right? So okay. anyway, and we talked about you, this for a long time also. <laughs> yeah, go yeah. on. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to keep the topic going, but I'll just say like, I'll tell you that same cognitive dissonance, which is what you're describing this, this split, if you will, between what you're, what you're ascribing for and what you actually are, mm-hmm. you know, um, that is one of the major factors that lead to like depression and all of these other major like Mm -hmm. psychological conditions because Mm -hmm. you become so dissatisfied and so dysphoric over a period of time because you're miserable inside of yourself and you know it 
Like, you know, that you're not reaching that bar mm-hmm. and it's not even like the bar is that high, but for whatever reason, you can't bring yourself to push past it. And most people are going to sit and wait for it to feel better or sit and wait for it to like be easier, but it doesn't get easier. The more you avoid, the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, That's absolutely. my little absolutely wrap up <laughs> love it <laughs> yeah i mean that's the uh, that's like therapy in a bottle <laughs> right Thera- life coach in a <laughs> bottle right <laughs> in a nutshell that's what that's what everyone is working on um one of the the major things um but uh but moving on i there's mm-hmm. there's quite a few other things that i wanted to speak about with you so yeah. still on this topic of um uh, what's going on today with the world and multiculturalism mm-hmm. and, you know, the studies, um, what do you have to say about, cause I also hear from the other side or just from people who, um, you know, who have never really experienced racism in their mm-hmm. lives. And, you know, sometimes they're like, well, you know, how do you know it's racism? If that person didn't call you this or didn't say that to your face or didn't, you know, <laughs> like it, explicitly express it then yeah like you could just be making it up how do you know it's racism so um it's difficult to explain to people like who don't have a psychology or neurology background um or sociology background about you know um things that might be like implicit or more or you know subconscious messaging implicit messaging yes yes So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Again, another really big and loaded topic. Um, So implicit implicit bias. Well, I see that. This is just great. And this is why I'm so glad to be here. Um, Implicit racism, implicit bias, all of it is a thing. It's, it's definitely studied in the research. There's a whole line of research through like social psychology and everything else that actually talks about these exact things. Um, And the, the interesting part which is implied by the name, however, we're going to be explicit about what we're going to say, is that a lot of times these implicit messages are subconscious. People are not aware that Mm -hmm. they have these biases a lot of times, but the language that they're using, the terminology that they're using, the perspective even that that they choose to highlight can be very offensive. And I think if you are not aware that things are offensive, then it's difficult for you to to understand or internalize the perspective of somebody else that something that you said was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, like I said, there's tons of research, but I'll just, I'll speak to a couple of them just to highlight a few of of the little points. Um, There is a study, I believe this is an old study. So I'm gonna go like all the way back. This is a study, a paper that was written in like 1950. Um, I think it was talking about like warm and cold variables Um, I can pull it up if I need to, but the main point of this article was discussing how the way that people are informed about a topic or the way that they're introduced to an individual will impact if they interact with this individual and how they interact with the individual. And beyond that, not only if and how, but how they perceive that individual. Um, And there were lots of different statistics that came up, but I think it was like 56% of the individuals who were given like a warm introduction or a warm overview or warm pre-information tended to want to go back and interact with that individual and wanted to discuss or had more favorable discussions. That makes sense. Whereas, right. Whereas like 
only 32% of those in this particular study that were given a cold piece of information or a cold introduction were even interested in continuing to go beyond this. What do you mean by warm and cold? Um, so like, what are examples? Like, I, I can give examples. I don't remember exactly how the article defined it. Um, so a little bit outside of the research, what they're discussing is basically if you're told about something like, let's, let's make this broad, right? Um, if you were given information about a certain ethnic group or a certain culture in a positive way, um, then you are more likely to have positive feelings towards them and you are more positive to see things positively from their perspective. So I can use it in our context, right? You're discussing a lot. You've talked a lot on the podcast about like your particular experiences within Asian culture, right? Um, If, if, if I had no exposure to anybody from an Asian culture and my parents or somebody that I valued came to me and they were like, this is this culture group. And this is what they generally believe based on the information that's been, that's been given. Right. But these are great people and this and that, and da, 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 da. then when we meet, mm-hmm. I'm going to have warm feelings towards you, positive feelings. I'm going to be like, Oh, this is great. I've, I've heard about your culture, but now I want to know more because right. I'm interested and I'm not threatened by it. And I don't see, I'm not looking at you in um, where I feel like you're less than me or whatever the case is, but I'm going to see you as like, okay, this is a great person. I want to have this interaction. Whereas if my parents would have framed that in a negative way and be like, oh, you know, those Asian people, they fill in the blank, or Mm -hmm. I just can't stand when, or whatever their personal feelings were, even if they didn't intend to pass across that message. Now I, as a child have a message. We don't like this group of people because they are whatever that message was, which right. I think creates this implicit bias and these implicit messages. Of course. Um, and it, it contributes to hostile feelings. So for example, if you were raised in a household that had biases, I will refrain from using the word racist because a lot of people are charged by that word. But if you lived in a household that did have certain biases towards certain ethnic groups or towards genders or, or orientations or whatever the case was, then you were primed to believe negative things and experiences about that group of people. You were primed to see things about this group of people from a negative lens, which makes it difficult for you to be objective, regardless of if you think you're biased or not, because those were the values that you were taught. And based on our environment and what we're taught and what we see, that's what internalizes as our normal. That's what makes up our, our conception or conceptualization mm-hmm. rather of life. Right. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that, you mm-hmm. know, even moving it over to go ahead. Uh, so, uh, so basically warm means positive and cold means negative, but also mm-hmm. another rhetorical perhaps question, <laughs> but as you were talking about growing up in uh, families that have certain biases towards certain racial groups or cultural groups or ethnic groups, mm-hmm. are there, do you think that it's possible for to, uh, to grow up in a family that has zero biases toward other groups? I mean, again, psychology-wise, neurology-wise, biases are 
how our brains work, like the, you know, the categorizing yeah. things, grouping things, being like, okay, this is the same. This is different. This is different because of this. This is the same because of this. So if it's the same, therefore I belong to this. If it's different, therefore I don't belong to that. Like, you know, like our brains just naturally categorize things like this. So yes. therefore, do you think it's possible for any cultural, any family to, of any culture to um, be completely unbiased in the way that they teach their kids about or think about other races. Wow. <laughs> I okay. know. I, this is the stuff I think about. Like, this is what I'm saying. Without my calendar, I'd be, like, a mess because I'm constantly, <laughs> like, hmm. That's why I did not major in philosophy. Yeah. You would have spent be... all day just in the book. Just, I would just spend reading, all reading, day. reading, 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 reading. No, more like staring up at the sky, like, asking and questions. And just thinking. Have, yeah, like. Uh, yeah, like, that have yet to be answered. Um, yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. So my immediate answer is is it possible to be a hundred percent bias, be in an environment completely without bias? I would say no, because you're absolutely correct. That's, that is how our brains work, right? Our brain is this wonderful machine, this wonderful organ that tries to make sense of things and wants to make things efficient, mm. right? So to a certain extent, it is grouping things into certain categories. However, I do think there's a difference um, and the closest way to get to that point, to be as close to the non-bias as possible, is to be able to present information objectively, you know, with whatever is going on and whatever you choose to discuss, um, especially if kids are involved, just being like, you know, this was my experience, but this does not mean that this person is this. Mm. Um, however, this frustrated me and here's why. Being able to talk about it and apply the correct language and the correct and ascribe the right labels to it so that the kid is given or a child is given additional information to be able to filter that in the right way, rather than it just being these blanket or overarching statements like, you know, like women are bad drivers in general, you know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, I'm a better driver than most people that I know. So that's actually incorrect. Mm -hmm. However, you know, a lot of people do have that, or there's certain biases about, um, certain abilities that certain ethnicities can do. And I think I will speak to like my parents. I think my parents possibly because we're such a huge melting pot of different ethnicities and cultures, they did a really good job to give us access to education and information that was important for us to know without pressing their personal feelings or judgments without imposing those mm -hmm. into the conversation. Um, I don't, I didn't grow up with an idea that, you know, all white people were racist or all this were this, or, you know, all, you know, I, I didn't, I, that was not my reality. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm -hmm. um, because my parents were very careful to be like, yes, this is in history. Mm -hmm. This part of history in whatever culture whether it be to like the Jews or the blacks or whatever, you know, this was unacceptable because people are people, humans are humans, and we should treat everybody with respect, period, right? Mm -hmm. However, this is very unfortunate and we need to acknowledge that this has occurred. We need to acknowledge that this is something that was significant. Here's how we feel about it. How do you feel about it? Okay, well, let's talk through it, right? right. Um, this does not mean that all people feel this way. Right, but unfortunately, right. there are some that do. And because of that, you then have to be careful. You know, it was like being able to frame it in the right way. Um, so, yeah, that's that's tough.
Yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think that's the only way really that we have. Um, yeah. And that's a great, a great parenting skill, by the way, like to teach other parents and how, how to have these conversations with their kids. It's yeah. like, this is just my experience, regardless of what you're talking about, race or not race, you know, but, you yeah. know, it'd be, this is just my experience in life or with this job or dot, 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 fill in the blank. However, you know, it's not everyone's experience and it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. your experience because right. I think so many of us our parents are just that way you know they're just like this is my experience in life therefore don't do this I'm teaching you a lesson don't repeat my mistakes or you right. know don't do this or don't and really what it is speaking about trauma they're just letting their traumas into another generation Those generational curses <laughs> right <they> come heavy <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So it's like, that may or may not be their children's experience with that yeah. particular topic or person or race or, you know, job or whatever at all. Like, they, they could have a totally different experience with it. But especially at kids, as kids, again, so malleable, we just tend to listen to our parents and we're like, oh, that must be correct. Yep. And we and adopt then, it as fact. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And that's, that's the same problem that like I see in society in general is like, you know, mm -hmm. is, oh, that must be correct. Therefore it is a fact, black and white thinking, like that yes. is it. No other yes. question about it. I always say question everything, like everything, yeah. everything, question everything. Um, another interesting question for you. Do you think that children don't see color? You know how there's that common yeah. you know, quote, right? They say children yeah. don't see color. Do you think that's true? Um. I mean, I do think they see color or they might be colorblind. And <laughs> I don't mean like have some neurological. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just being facetious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, that's true. <laughs> I, I know people completely disagree with this, but I personally, I mean, I would say yes. I think that a lot of times our biases are again, created by our environment mm -hmm. um, or an experience yes. and whatever that is. I mean, and I can say that mainly from my personal experience. Um, yes, while I could acknowledge a physical difference in color, um, mm -hmm. and I had friends of a lot of different backgrounds and diversities, and I loved that. As a child, I was so deeply enthralled into culture. I actually had, like, a huge identity crisis through, like, middle school and, like, thought I was every ethnicity, every, like, I was a different ethnicity every week, literally. <laughs> what? Like, it was my parents Did you were, express like, what? that? Yes. <laughs> Out That's loud. awesome though. It was, it was crazy. You know, looking back on it, my parents were like, you were really going through something, but we just left you to your own devices. <laughs> and we were like, she'll figure it out eventually. But like literally every week I would come home and be like, oh, I'm Dominican today. Or, oh, I'm Hispanic. Or, oh, you know, I, I come from this background. Or, that sounds oh, like, like fun. I have a friend from Korea that just started at school and I'm, I want to be from this part of Korea. You know, like I just, I was just all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I'm thankful that they gave me that opportunity to explore without shutting it down. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. though I, I do see looking back, like I was going through something. Um, but at the same time, like I wasn't looking as a child, I, I get that notion because I wasn't looking at people like, oh, you are of this ethnicity. And therefore, if any, if anything, I got the negative end of that from a lot of my peers, because I think I was so racially ambiguous to so many people. Um, you know, like my hair was super long and it was curly and it was this and it was that. And like my eyes would somewhat change color, like different shades, mm -hmm. not like my sisters actually change color, but like my eyes would be different shades. And 
I just, my nose, you know, this is not a black nose, you know, like there was always a feature that people were picking out and they were like, I was almost being like bounced back and forth between different cultures and my different mm-hmm. friends group being like, well, you don't really fit with us. So you have to go over there. Okay. Well now I'm over here. Well, no, you're not, you're not this enough. So it was a lot. Um, so I saw that happening, but I, I think I attribute it to my parents, I guess. Um, definitely I'll give them the credit for it. Cause I know I didn't teach myself that as a child, but at the same time, like I didn't see color in that context where I was looking at you and I was like, Oh, well, let me first identify your ethnicity and then decide how I'm going to react to you. Right. Um, right. And I think we see it in all of those cute little kid videos all over the internet where like, there's two kids of like completely different races and cultures and everything that are like rugging. They're like, Oh, we're twins today. This is my twin. We're brothers or we're sisters. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh, but you're not twins. But that is so cute that you think that, Mm -hmm. you know? So, well, twins or siblings don't have to be biological. So family doesn't have to be biological. (laughs) They don't. (laughs) And later in life, we form our own families, you know, anyway. So, but yeah, no, thinking back to my own experiences growing up in the city as a kid, um, I did not like my very first best friend, Kelly, she was black and I, but I didn't know that. I mean, you know, it just wasn't a thing, you know, and my teachers too were all different colors and I never really I didn't really wonder about I'm sure some kids are like oh I wonder why but even for me though I didn't really wonder about it until a little bit later on um but yeah so my first experiences yeah it's like when you start learning about history then all of a sudden you're like wait there's a term like I I I can identify as something now Uh. so like where do I fit For a lot of kids I see, especially like in my own profession, um, around like that middle school age is when children have this like ethnic identity start kicking in (laughs) where they're like, okay, wait, I am now of this group. Mm -hmm. What -hmm. does that mean for me? Um, Yeah, for good and bad, you know, pros and cons to that. I wonder if maybe we should start start off teaching kids with you know saying that you're a little bit of everything because when you think about it we kind of all are I think 23 right and 23 and me has shown so many people I know so many I gotta take that too but it's just like they're they're just shocked they're like oh wow I'm literally from every part of the world right (laughs) so yeah yeah interesting (laughs) do you want to say to your previous question, but going back to like implicit biases and everything else, yeah. Um, just as another quick comment, another line of research that just popped up in my mind, I think this is also a really important topic for providers to be cognizant of, to be aware. I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with research. Um, and at the same time, there was a study that came out in 2010, mm-hmm. um, and it looked specifically at a patient physician relationship. Um, And this whole paper was basically demonstrating that individuals actually have the ability to detect bias or adverse racism, Hmm. especially if it was, even if it was implicit during interactions with their physicians and how Hmm. it made a difference in whether or not their, their treatment was going to be positive or not, or go in a good direction or whether or not there was going to be good patient care. Um, And so in like the less favorable or less positive interactions. And specifically this was done with um, individuals of color. So like black people and well, individuals of color could involve a lot of people, but this was a specific paper on blacks and physicians, mm-hmm. right? And so the less positive interactions that occurred um, that these 
individuals who identified as Black had with their non-Black physicians, even if they had scored low on explicit bias, meaning they didn't think that they held a bias at all. Who didn't? The physician didn't? The physicians. So the physicians Mm -hmm. were also given a measure. So the physicians, even if they felt that they scored low on implicit bias, Mm -hmm. they were actually rated high. I mean, on explicit bias, sorry, or like their outward appearance, they didn't feel like they were biased, Mm -hmm. actually rated high on implicit biases. Mm -hmm. And their, their patients saw the bias and read between the lines Hmm. because there's certain things that I think are trigger words for certain cultures. And I think it's very important to determine what those are. And I think it varies with everybody. So it's hard to do so. Um, But one example in particular that just popped up, I have a friend um, we've gone through like our whole like undergrad grad school experience. And now we're both in neuropsychology together. So it's actually pretty funny. Um, but one thing that used to always make her angry, I was never that bothered by it, but she used to be so angry was when people came to us and they were like, Oh, wow, you're so articulate Mm -hmm. that like, (laughs) she would like, yeah, explode. Mm -hmm. Because if you're saying those type of things, person of color, especially mm-hmm. depending on their experiences, their immediate reaction is, well, why wouldn't I be articulate? Did mm-hmm. you expect anything less of me? You wouldn't mm-hmm. say that if I was sitting by my friend here. So mm-hmm. why would you? And then it's like these huge things, right? And to, to most people, they're like, oh, well, you're just being sensitive. I'm not racist or I'm not biased because I just felt that. But then you really have to ask yourself, really take some time to think like, why would that have been so shocking to you to point out that an individual was articulate? Mm-hmm. Something in you didn't believe like that why, they would be. Right. Like, why didn't you just naturally assume that they would be articulate? That they would be. be. Just, yeah. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's deep and it, it, it sucks. Well, I have, know? I mean, my experience of <laughs> people used to tell me, people of all races sometimes, I mean, luckily there weren't too many. However, I do remember, like, there were more than enough. Let's just put it yeah. that way. Um, when guys, men used to say, oh, you're too pretty to be Chinese or you're yeah or you like see? you're you're really pretty Bias. for a Chinese person I'm like that's what? so offensive <laughs> but they're like they're like oh I'm giving you a compliment right that's what you're... they're saying they False. don't they don't see it as like racist at all <laughs> that's so offensive <laughs> and then the other thing I just got in a conversation a discussion um with uh uh my friends during dinner the other day actually um when I was saying somehow it's this the conversation came up so it was like a friend group of like people from different all different races right and yeah and we were uh, saying how offensive it was um especially me i was expressing how you know i'm i get sick of people asking me one of the first questions they ask me when they meet me is where are you from and i'm like oh i'm from la or i'm from the east coast and no where are you really from yeah. You know, and like, I feel a lot of Asians or a lot of people who aren't, it's not yeah. so obvious, you know, they're like, where are you really from? But that's, and then, and then my friend who was white just did not understand. And we all had to kind of explain it to him, but like, he just had a hard time understanding like why we <laughs> felt that it was an issue. And yes. I was like, you know, it's an issue when that's the first thing that they say, or one of the first things that, that matters to them is where are you from? It's like, at least get to know me a bit at least ask yeah. questions. At least you got it phrased that way. That's a little more respectful. The question I've always gotten literally since I was young is what are you? Hmm. Oh yeah, no, I get that too. That's that's that. the that's how it's phrased. It's what are you? 
I'm like, um, yeah, I get that. A person? Like, what are you at? Well, no, what, what are you? I'm a female. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, let me just tell you what I identify as because I'm not sure what you're asking. No, but what are you? And then the really bold ones are like, well, you're not black and you can't be completely white because you're colored. So, and then it's like this what do you whole say? explanation. And I'm just like, <laughs> what's a good response to that? I mean, <laughs> usually, usually I just end up laughing. It just depends on my, like, on my mindset at that time. Like, am I offended or am I just shocked mm-hmm. or am I just finding this lack, like, like this ignorance amusing? Like I, it just depends, but mm-hmm. usually my, my, my response actually, interestingly enough, it changes depending. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm a woman of color. So I am not African-American. I'm not because I'm not American mm-hmm. at all. Um, although I do have status, you know, like, so there's a huge conversation with that. Sometimes yeah, I'll take the time to break it down. Up a whole other like, that's a whole different thing. Sometimes I'll take the opportunity to break it down. And other times I'm just like, you know what? I'm just, I'm mixed. I mm-hmm. consider myself, I identify as being of mixed race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually from an island. In fact, I'm Bermudian, mm-hmm. but then they don't know what that is either. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, <laughs> then I get the really great questions. Oh, so you're from the Bermuda Triangle. Not quite, but yes. So how did you get here? I'm like, oh, well, I swam. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I swam <laughs> all across the ocean. Like, yeah. And then I wow. rode the back of a shark and then I hopped onto the sea turtle and then I drove like, I don't know what you want. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I'll just go with right. it. That is so interesting. <laughs> I mean, a part of me understands that people are just curious, but then I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm like conflicted about this also. All I know is that it's annoying to be asked that question, like in the first, first few questions that you could that matters to you about the other person, you know, is yeah. what are you? Or yeah. what Not are like, you what's really? your name? Mm-hmm. How are you doing? Well, I mean, it could come after that, but it was usually like the third <laughs> by the third. So like max fifth question, like if it happens, if that person really cares, it's just like, bloop. it's just like, that's just what yeah. they ask. But yeah, I mean, these are all so fascinating, um, such fascinating topics. And unfortunately we are, um, running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to, I wanted to ask, um, well, first of all, I actually, uh, you said that you're not American. I, I want to add that it's funny because I identify with being American more mm-hmm. so even than I identify with being Asian. So, I mean, I'm American. I consider myself American, you know, that's why when people ask me, where are you from? I'm like, oh, LA or the East Coast or, you know, somewhere in America first, right? But it's interesting to hear you say that you don't identify with that. So again, well, so my question is, where were you born? I was born not in America. Where were you? Where did you grow up? In America. But I'm a U.S. citizen. Yeah. So yeah. because I think I'm a that's... U.S. citizen, that's what makes mm-hmm. me American. Like, that's just how in my – because, yeah, right. I mean, all I've known really is America. I'm yeah. American. I'm a U.S. citizen. You know, I celebrate Fourth of July. Yeah. I'm American. Yeah. So I only ask that question because I think that the responses to those questions make a difference. So for me, I was born in Bermuda, and I spent a lot of my childhood in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, you know, I I'm – did come to the United States um, at an early age and I jumped back and forth. So I spent like a number of years on the East coast. Like I think I did third grade in Florida, fourth grade and like half of fourth grade in Massachusetts, then back in Florida, 
Then I went back to Bermuda for high school. So it was all over. So I think for me, even though like, yes, I have citizenship, I guess I'm technically American, but I identify more with being Bermudian because right. not only was I born there, but like I spent my time there. Right. So I right. think that kind of makes a difference for, for a lot of people mm-hmm. where it's like, it just depends on where I've spent. I mean, technically now that I'm way older, um, I have spent the majority of the time of my life probably in the United States. <laughs> I haven't well, counted yeah. it. I think, but... yeah, it depends on how you perceive it. Like what you, what yeah. you identify, like for me, the, the line for me is citizenship. It's just, you know, where are you a citizen? So for me, it's a matter of legalities. If you're a citizen of this country, then you, then that's where you are, that you belong to that country type thing. But I also definitely understand like inside in your hearts, right? Like what's your motherland or what, you know, what country you belong Mm -hmm. to, you know, things like that. So, I mean, in my heart, I know that my, I always say my motherland is China, but you know, Mm -hmm. I am a U.S. citizen, but I'm American. So, you know, it's like, that's that's my mother right and then this is me type thing um but yeah. i kind of related also to like the you know what's happening with um uh the gender identities right now right because mm-hmm. some people look at someone they're like no you're a woman you're a man you're a male you're a female however right. they don't identify with that right mm-hmm. so whatever they identify is you know they're that's that's them that's who they really are that's who they feel like they are and as you know like a matter of respects, you know, is right. What refer to them to, as such. Exactly what they choose to identify with. So anyway, we definitely are out of time. <laughs> yes. And we've covered so many different topics. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I have a feeling that if you were to come on again, like there would be a ton more topics to cover still. <laughs> like we could have these conversations for forever. But um, no, I've had yes. such a pleasure, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of uh, our audio video podcast. Is there anything that you would like to yes, add thank you. before um, we end the I show? I think the main thing that's pressing is just in light of everything that's going on, just I, I encourage everybody to take time for yourself. Make sure that you're pouring into you, um, investing in your self-care, whatever that looks like, whether it be um, giving yourself an hour, just meditate a day or- to- If you would like to give yourself, allot yourself a TV show, um, Mm -hmm. give yourself a moment to relax, get a massage, do your nails, like, I don't know, read a book, whatever it looks like to just be able to take time um, and like ground yourself and be mindful and just kind of center just to sort of take away or reduce some of those cortisol levels and give yourself some, some happy endorphins. Um, do so. I think there's a lot that's going on. A lot of people are triggered. A lot of people are traumatized. A lot of people are struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really, really important, especially during everything that's going on to make sure that you're being kind to yourself um, and just understand that it's okay to not be okay. And if you aren't, it's also okay to reach out and tell somebody that you're not okay Mm -hmm. because you're not alone. So that's like my little takeaway. Especially mm-hmm. lately, I just tell everybody like you're not alone. We're all struggling, and that's okay. And if you mm-hmm. need somebody to talk to, reach out. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely, absolutely. We're going breaking taboo, <laughs> and you know, or there's yes, a, yeah, whole community Tons there. Of resources, resources, community. You know, there are obviously people who want to help, and um, 
you know, yes. uh, uh, this uh, again, thank you so much for being a part of Breaking Taboo and coming on board and sharing your knowledge, yes. wisdom, and um, some controversial, rhetorical, yet very interesting topics. <laughs> I loved it. Love this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Sam. <gasps> Oh, there's your dog. Okay, you better there go feed your are. dog. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, now they want their attention. They know it's done. You know, they know. They know it's over. So they heard my wrap up and they were like, mm hmm. Yeah. It happens every time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Sam. It was a pleasure chatting with you and we'll be in touch. Thank you. And thank you yes, so much for watching, you. everyone. Bye.